Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. We're, we're talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're doing it by looking at Exodus. We've got, you know, over 20 chapters we've already covered. We've got a lot of the audios up in place already. And uh, I've been doing this by going along with listening to what other people have to say, you know, over the last 50, 60 years, 70 years, listening to people, what they had to say about Exodus and the, and the Bible and the interpretations of the Bible, at which there are many. And I've also been following Jordan Peterson's uh, symposium on Exodus and, uh, and seeing how those scholars are looking at the process of Exodus and their personal interpretations. They have Jews there. Uh, a Jew there, they have uh, Protestants, they have Catholic people from academia and writers, and they all have an opinion about it. And they bring up some very interesting points. And so I was waiting for them to come out with their uh, second half. They've got episodes one through eight, and we've covered those. And uh, they finally, just as we're getting to uh, chapter 21, they started with their episode 9, uh, which I believe that they were going to be going into Exodus 21 with. And uh, they spent the entire episode 9 talking, uh, rereading 19 and 20. And uh, then they've been talking about most of what 20 includes, which is what we call the Ten Commandments or Ten Statements. And uh, the word that they have there that they translate into commandment is actually really means statements. We think of the Ten Commandments as ten laws, and in, in one way they are ten laws, but they're the statements of God telling us how the law actually works. He's not making up new laws. Those laws are actually already in existence and he's explaining them with these ten statements about the law, which is really, in essence, the law of nature that God created when God created the universe. Now, to some atheists, and we've talked a lot about atheists, I've done a program on atheists, uh, with an atheist who was interviewing me, and uh, we put that up on YouTube. And uh, we've had other people, other atheists that I've had con conversations with and uh, and pointed out the different things. And you can go listen to those as well. And uh, to me, the counter theory to a God, a divine intelligence, a divine source of creation, a singularity source of creation that has set all these patterns in motion, takes much less faith than the Big Bang Theory. 
the Big Bang Theory is suggesting that all the complexities of nature, going down to the tiny little cellular level, the molecular level, all this is just simply a coincidence. It is just uh, the, the result of mathematics and chemistry and you know atomic structures that form themselves so that a single atomic structure, a tiny little atom, you can smash it with a hammer, you can smash it with a sledgehammer, you can smash it with a uh, hundred tons of uh, pressure on it and it still is an atom. It still remains an atom. You can't disturb it. Uh, and then all these atoms got together and they made life. And I'm talking to you now over the radio because of just these chemical reactions that have taken place since somewhere in the non-existent universe, a Big Bang took place, and now here we all are. It, to me, that that is a huge leap of faith, <laughs> that there is no design to the existence of the world around us. Uh, but... Uh, the atheist clings to his religion of atheism and wants to believe that there is no God. And by doing so, he removes a great deal of what could lead to greater understanding. And I've, I've given examples of scientists like Matthias who has been studying all kinds of other scientists and the psychology of other scientists and what other scientists think and some of the greatest scientists of the last century or more all believe in God. As a matter of fact, some had moved away from atheism. The more they learned about science, they moved away from atheism. And the more they believed that there has to be a divine intelligence behind this. And they accredit some of their greatest discoveries to the fact that they believe that they received divine inspiration from that creative force, that God. And that's what's led them to understand what they believe they could not have arrived at with logic alone. But yet, one of the things that uh, I find uh, abundant in many atheists is not only a desire for the license that comes when there is no moral God guiding us, but also the the... the the license for their own particular actions and uh, and their disregard for the uh, idea that there is a cohesive wisdom in creation. That we're all just this random result of, of chemistry. Now, admittedly, there the ideas of atheists uh, are as fundamentally diverse as the ideas of Protestants. <laughs> so, there are all kinds of different atheists, and many atheists just, what they did is like they threw out religion, or they threw out false religion, or, or what you would call uh, modern Christianity. They threw that out because of the hypocrisy and, and uh, the, the, the fallacies that are presented in their doctrines of religion. And became atheists because they thought that was the only other alternative. But the reality is what when we are looking at these scriptures, we're seeing 
that it is not blind rituals and ceremonies that make a religion. That religion always had a purpose. And I've been adding to lots and lots of different pages that we've been working on. And I see that it's going to be very important to have these pages in place. Because as we go through Exodus and come to some of the other quotes in Exodus, the other verses in Exodus, the teachings that we see coming down to to us from Moses in Exodus, that we're going to need to have other things explained. And just as we've seen in the first 20 chapters, we came upon the word leaven. And we were told that they had to have unleavened bread and get the leaven out of their quarters, as the King James says, which is actually the word everywhere else. Get them out of the boundaries of their nation. And a nation is a people. So all these people have to get the leaven out of their communities. Ritually speaking, if we want to go to Domestic rituals, rituals that we have, and there was a lot of talk in Jordan Peterson's symposium in their episode 9 about rituals and ceremonies and how important they are. And we're going to touch on some of that. And we're, we've already done several broadcasts on 19 and, and some on 20. And of course 20 is the Ten Commandments, and we already have pages on the Ten Commandments, and you can go there and you can study, and you can ask me questions, uh, or ask us questions about, well, what about this, and what about that? That's how we have created all these hundreds and hundreds of pages answering these questions to the best of our ability. I mean, when somebody asked me a question, even back when my children were very small, they would see me kind of turn to the side and listen to what was in my heart, what was being told to me in my heart as to what the answer to that question was. And sometimes the question was something, can we go do this? And I would still go to this quiet part in uh, place in my own heart and ponder, should they do that? And I would wait for an answer. And sometimes an answer would come, no. And sometimes the answer would come, yes. And sometimes the answer would come, or not come. And I didn't know yes or no. And I would tell them, I can't give you an answer right now. I don't have an answer. Because I could see them getting impatient, wanting the answer, and I'm sitting there being very still. Often to me it was like a few seconds, but to them it was like 20 minutes. (laughs) But but that's children for you. But uh, if I didn't get an inclination as to whether they should go, whether they should go this way or that way or do this thing or that thing, I would say, I, I don't have an answer for you right now. And they would, of course, like children, complain that, oh, but I want an answer right now, you know. They would, they would say, oh, Dad, we just want to know, can we go, you know. And it was usually when there w- it was in advance, they want to know, can they go tomorrow or or in a couple of days go on a trip with somebody? And I would, I'd say, I, I can't give you an answer right now. Now, maybe I couldn't give them an answer because I'd also want to talk to their mother about it or whatever. I don't know. It all always vary. But if I couldn't give them an answer, they would 
you know, and they wanted one right now, they would complain, but they learned really quick on. I never even remember when they didn't understand this, because, because I've been consistent in it, is that, well, I would respond when they demanded an answer now. If you want an answer right now, I can give you an answer right now, but you may not like the answer I can give you right now. And so you may want to wait for an answer when the time is more appropriate. And they would, I don't remember a time that they didn't immediately respond, no, we'll wait. (laughs) Because they knew my policy was, when in doubt, don't. If you don't, if you don't feel inclined to do something, you don't feel led to do something by that still small voice, by that, that quiet place in your heart, when you're not deciding what is good and evil, but you're asking God what is right. You know, you may not say, Lord, what is right? You may not voice those words, but you go to this quiet, place in your heart where you're not making up answers, where you're not deciding things, and you're asking, should I do this? Should I do that? And I I have made a habit out of doing that for much of my life. Uh, Once I got out of the uh, bell-ringing society that I was uh, sent to by my parents called school, (laughs) where there'd be a bell and you would have to go to this class or a bell and you would have to go to that class and uh, you were now going to be interested in mathematics and you were now going to be interested in history and you were gonna, now going to be interested and other people were leading you around. And then when I went to the seminary, it was very much the same thing that everything was scheduled out by somebody else. But now, uh, or when I left that school, I had to start finding, well, where am I going to get a schedule? How will I know what to do now or today or tomorrow or whenever? How will I know how to answer questions? And I, you know, I was already learning meditation before I graduated from high school, which was, I was only 17 when I graduated from high school. I had already attended St. Joseph's College years before I could have gone to college during, when I was 16, I could have started taking college classes because I didn't need all the high school classes that I was in. I was in a private school. I've always gone to private schools. I never went to public schools. But uh, the the fact is, is uh, in, in meditation, I began to find this still small place. When I was lost at sea or lost in the wilderness of Canada or or wherever, you know, where I was trying to go across the country without a road map and saying, well, should I turn here? Should I turn there? I was learning to listen to that still small voice that is not a voice. It's not somebody talking to me. I'm not hearing voices. But it's something that guides me. And I'm still doing that today when I write or when somebody asks me a question. I I say, well, what is the answer? And I ask that place inside my heart. And what I want everybody to do is find that place for themselves. That's what Elijah wanted you to do. That's what Moses wanted you to do. One of the topics that came up 
in this episode 9. There were several of them, but uh, that they talked about. That, I mean, listen, maybe we should take them in order and and see what some of the things are. Just three minutes into the the show, Dennis points out that uh, only those that keep my commandments are God's people. That's something that he has determined from his reading of the Bible. I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying that Dennis Prager is the one who pointed that out. This is would also be true if we would just listen to Jesus, who who would say, He who does the will of my Father. Uh, not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who uh, doeth the will, if he, doeth the will of my Father. It, it's those who keep my commandments, abide in my love. So, if Israel is the people that are following God, they are the chosen people, the people of faith, like Abraham. Abraham was a person of faith, and that's what we read about him in the New Testament, where they're talking about what made Abraham Abraham, and the followers of Abraham the followers of Abraham, is that they live by faith. Well, the alternative of living by faith is living by force. And so... I agree with Dennis, what he says. I don't necessarily agree with what he means, but I'm not sure what he means. I have to listen to him more to find out what he means. But he says, keep my commandments. So that's one of the reasons why Exodus 20 is so important, because it lists off the commandments. And everybody has been able to go and read them, at least since Gutenberg. And uh, they can go and read the Ten Commandments and find out, well, do I do that? Do I do that? But do we understand the Ten Commandments? And that's part of the reasons why they revisited the Ten Commandments. And they talked in there about the people washing up, because they were reading 19 again. And, of course, baptism is the sort of washing up. Uh, we have articles on baptism to know what was the difference between between the Jewish baptism that was still going on at the time of Herod, and you would, there was a, still a laver out there in the front of the temple that Herod built, and you would have to go get washed up you'd just to enter the temple. You'd, they'd wash up many times, but there was an actual baptismal event. That would be written down by scribes when you got that baptism. And you would probably donate something to the temple at that at that time. And you would become a member of the temple. You had to get baptized before you become a member of the temple that was built by Herod. But John the Baptist was out in the Jordan River. He was also baptizing, not in the laver by the temple of Herod but in the Jordan River. And there was a distinction between those two baptisms. As a matter of fact, that distinction was so predominant when we're reading in John, we know that anybody who got the baptism of the apostles, who were carrying on after John the Baptist's execution, anybody who got that baptism, rather than the baptism at Herod's temple by the Pharisees, was cast out of the temple of Herod. So, what was that all about? What? Why was it so important that they got baptized by Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, they were kicked out of the temple. So, understanding that difference in the 
baptism of John and the apostles and of Jesus Christ and the baptism of Herod and the Pharisees is critical to understanding everything from the Ten Commandments, Genesis, on up to Revelation. You, you won't understand all those things that are in between if you do not understand that baptism. So, we've written articles on, on baptism. So you can see what, what was different. What was different about it. Why, what, because if you got the baptism of Jesus Christ, you were accepting Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And there are a lot of people today that say, oh, well, we don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. We don't see the divinity of Jesus. And then, you know, that, that the idea that Jesus was divine, they don't agree with. They don't believe in. They don't believe that that's actually the case. But then what's divine? You know, so we wrote another article about the Son of God. Because Jesus was called the Son of God. That makes him divine. But if you don't know that at the same exact time that people were starting to call Jesus the Son of God, that Augustus Caesar was also called the Son of God. That was the title of Augustus Caesar. And people, every year, went to the Roman temples and donated money confirming that they believed that Julius, uh, that Augustus Caesar was the son of God. And many of the many of them were called sons of God. And they claimed a divinity. But that's not so difficult to understand if you understand what a God is. God in the Ten Commandments says you're not to have other gods before me is kind of an admission that there are other gods. They're just not the same as the God, the Lord God, the Yahweh, thy God. Because God is an office. Take it up real quick because we want to get into 21, although they haven't got into 21 yet, so I may have to do some re-looking at that, but I've, I've prepared for it. But what I've been doing is adding to a lot of other pages so that, like the baptism page, so you understand what baptism is, you understand what leaven is, you understand what the rituals and ceremonies of religion is. Because people think, you know, like meat and milk. There are groups of Jews, not only that take the leaven out of their house during those seven days, but they also never cook meat and milk with the same pot or they don't cook meat and milk together and that just was not a thing early in Judaism or in in the teachings of Moses that is actually was fabricated sometime after the second temple it was very popular at the time of uh, the Pharisees that you had to prepare this meat and milk separately now, there is some statements in the Testament. We'll go into those when we do programs on that idea of meat and milk. But to tell you the truth, everything is symbolic. And we've gone over this many times throughout history that the words in the Hebrew have multiple meanings. You, our article on sophistry, our article on altars, altars of clay and stone, all these things have multiple meaning to the exact same word. 
And one of those meanings is abstract and the other one is very physical. We do that in English, not as much as they did it in Hebrew, but we do it in lots of other languages. Some languages have very little of that in their language itself. So the reality is is that that uh, idea of milk and meat really has to do with types of love. Now, it, it's actually on several different levels where you have milk and meat uh, used as symbolic of something. But at least on one level, it's milk and meat and love. And one of the ways to describe this, I mean, we can read in Corinthians and uh, in uh, other verses where they talk about this milk and meat you know that I've given you milk and because you weren't ready for the meat and so therefore that's pretty obvious when Paul is talking about that that he's talking about the meat is 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 more substantive but the milk is important children don't start out eating meat they start out with milk and so there's a symbolism there. We see that in the English and in the original Greek text. But if you go back in the Hebrew and they're talking about, you know, not boiling uh, a kid goat in milk. They, these are actually, they're not so much dietary laws, although they may have had some dietary influence. They were also symbolic. They're putting these phrases in to inform you of precepts and principles. And another example is if uh, a child is going to be disciplined because he acted badly, but the mother is saying, oh, well, no, don't be that way to, you know, poor little Johnny. Uh, she will spoil him with her constantly trying to comfort her child. And, and, but, she needs a husband who will actually also discipline the child. Now, women should learn that as well, but it seems to, in the role of male and female, the woman is more the nurturer, the one who gives the milk. The, the you know, because you find a baby and you don't decide, well, you're, you're, you find a baby in the ditch and you say, well, I need to help this baby. I need to get it some milk. I need to get it some warmth and some comfort. Well, that's, that's the milk love. You just give that to him. But if you find a guy who's in the ditch and you say, well, why is he in the ditch? Well, he's drunk again. Well, you're going to say, well, you know, you might help him out of the ditch. You might, uh, you know, get him, you know, sobered up. But you let him know that he's going to need to get sobered up on his own. He needs to not go back and get drunk again. Not go back and do stupid things again. Because that's the tough love. That's the meat love. So there's distinctions like that, and you need both. And when you give both, you will only know by the leading of the Holy Spirit, which takes us back to that still, small voice. So they were going through the Ten Commandments. They were talking about a lot of different things when they were going through reading Exodus 19. But they did talk about rituals and ceremonies. And one of the last things that Dennis brings up is the Sabbath, which is in the first five commandments of or statements the ten statements it's in that there and one of the things they pointed out in their show was the fact that the first four commandments as as uh, Dennis was counting them I, there's a different way in which they number commandments you know where 
you could have four commandments and the fifth commandment be, you know, honor thy father and thy mother. Or the fourth commandment would be honor thy father and thy mother. And the last two commandments are about coveting. Well, so some people put all the commandment about coveting in one commandment. And they divide up the first four commandments with the fifth one as honor thy father and thy mother. And you can do it either way. They're not really numbered in the Bible. Uh, they're ten statements or that, you know, at, at least that's what we see there at least. But there's actually more statements. There's other things that are added beyond covet that you're supposed to do or not do. But generally speaking, you know, it says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Well, I was never brought out of the land of Egypt. But I discovered early on that we were all back in the house of bondage again, the same as we were in Egypt. We didn't own our land. We didn't own all of our labor. That's when they were in bondage in Egypt. They didn't own all their labor. Earlier in that recording, uh, Oz, one of the panelists, was talking about how Solomon was considered becoming another pharaoh. That was one of the errors that he did because he had set up a corvée or corvée system of statutory labor, which is simply a portion of your labor belongs to the government. And in the book Covenants of the Gods, we show that slavery as we think of the term, and this is going to be important when we get into 21, chapter 21, that slavery as we think of it as it was in early America, didn't exist almost at all in Egypt. That kind of slavery didn't exist. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, but they were slaves in Egypt because they sold themselves into an indentured servitude. They promised one-fifth of their labor belonged to the government. So twenty, they had to pay 20% of their labor to the government every year. That was the bondage of Egypt. It was a corvée system of statutory labor. And we never had that in America for the first hundred years or so. Your labor all belonged to you. 100% of your labor belonged to you if you were a free man. If you were a slave, a portion of your labor, and it was indistinguishable as to how much of your labor, belonged to whoever your master was. The government didn't own slaves. The people owned slaves. But, of course, in the early days of America, it was a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. So, in a sense, the government of the people owned, some of the people owned slaves. But the people who were free in America, they weren't slaves. All their labor belonged to them. It was FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who introduced the idea that a portion of your labor would belong to to the government. It was a very small amount of your labor. I mean, it, did, it it amounted to just a few percentage points of your labor at the beginning. But it was calculated in U.S. dollars. And I point out U.S. dollars because it was calculated in Federal Reserve note dollars. That that was what you were going you know, 20% or or 1.5% of the dollars that you earned in a given year would go to the government. And eventually, 
it became higher and higher. Now your Social Security liability is over 14% by itself, plus you owe an income tax on the rest of your labor, which could be 10%, 20%, 30%, 40% of your labor. And that's just the way they constructed the system. The system under uh, Joseph was 20%, one-fifth of your labor belonged to the government. And really, it was only one-fifth of the labor of the men belonged to the government. It didn't count the labor of the children. It didn't count the labor of the women. But eventually, they wanted the whole household involved in that. So eventually, that burden became more and more. So to have more children increased your tax burden. And so people were actually aborting their children. But some people were still having children, quite a few children. Sometimes they were hiding their male children. Evidently, there was probably more tax if you had a male child than there was if you had a female child, which in the excavations now we find there were more female children being raised up because there were more female children being found, you know, dying at three or four or five or six young ages. And they they said, well, there are more females that are dying than there should be for a normal birth rate of females. It's because they were casting their male children into the river. And, of course, Moses' mother cast her son into the river, abiding by, evidently, the law. But she put them in a basket first. And somebody pulled them out, and that person was above the law. And so Moses survived. And Moses eventually led the people out of Egypt. But now he's going to teach them new rituals and ceremonies. They had rituals and ceremonies in Egypt. One of those rituals was one-fifth of their labor belonged to the state. And part of the rituals and ceremonies of that is when you made a hundred bricks, you gave 20 of them to the state. Or if you did any other kind of work and produced any other kind of commodity, 20% of them, the labor for 20% of them belonged to the government. That was the bondage of Egypt. I haven't heard anybody in the forum with Jordan Peterson Point that out. They have mentioned Corvée, where a portion of your labor belonged to the government. They have mentioned that that was the essence, at least one of the major elements of the bondage of Egypt. But I haven't heard him say that they're all back in the bondage of Egypt again. But then I've just barely got to Exodus, or their episode 9. So maybe they'll get to it eventually. Because to me, it's a no-brainer. It's obvious. Still, small voice tells me that, but just reading the English, you should know that. But they don't quite get it. But the god of that system in Egypt was the pharaoh. They don't have a pharaoh now. And we saw Moses kind of becoming a pharaoh because he was the ruling judge for all the cases being brought before him. And and his father-in-law said, that's not going to work. You're going to have to turn that job back over to the people. They have to take back that responsibility. Because in essence, what we're going to be seeing here is Moses is creating a government of the people for the people and by the people. And we, we're we going to hear 
people talking, you know, in the Jordan Peterson's episodes, that there's a hierarchy established. Well, kind of and kind of not. If I say hierarchy, you're thinking of men over other men. That would be what we see at the bottom of Exodus 20, where there seems to be an initial commandment after the covenant, the covetous commandment, which is supposed to be the last one. But you're not to go up by steps. That's going up by steps. That's a hierarchy. We talked about that in the video at uh, His Holy Church YouTube. And you need to understand these things, start putting them into perspective. So we're just going to go down through this really quick because I, I now can hear the station. I should be able to watch for my cues. But uh, so the idea that Yahweh is God, Yahweh is judge, Yahweh is going to decide what is good and evil. The Lord, thy God, decider of good and evil, not the Supreme Court, not the President of the United States, not uh, Moses even. Moses isn't going to decide what is good and evil for the people. The Lord is. And eventually we're going to have to figure out how we communicate with the Lord. Now we're going to have written words down here, but we're going to see how written words can be misinterpreted. If you don't know, if you don't have all the information, you can read it, but not understand what you're reading. If you have wrong information, which is passed around copiously for centuries now, then you're going to be absolutely confused. Guaranteed. So, because Yahweh brought them out of the house of bondage, He's going to feed them in the desert for four years, provide for them, protect them. Protection draws subjection. That's an old legal axiom. If you're getting protection from somebody and they're spending energy to protect you, you're going to owe them if you accept that protection. So, verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods. Well, now we know what gods are. And there's a link on the page. Thou shalt not make any graven images. There was a lot of talk. They went on for a half an hour about graven images. Is it about statues? And then they had angels on the top of the ark. And, and people were bowing down and worshiping the ark. And no. Well, they don't know the meaning of the word worship. They... They, they're serving. Worship has to do with service. Graven images has to be, has to do with something you make. Well, before any artist makes a graven image, he makes that image in his mind. And Jesus talks to you about the guy who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if you create an image of God in your mind, have you already Broken the commandment on graven images. Because in your heart, you've already created a false image of God. A false image of Christ. A false image of Moses. Pharisees did. They didn't know Moses. They thought they did. They had an image of Moses in their mind, but they were creating, they were committing adultery with that image. They were committing idolatry with that image. Now, this is all going to come together, but it, 
He talks about thou shalt not bow down, thou shalt not serve it. So you create some institution and you serve that institution. You have to give it 10% of your labor, 20% of your labor. You are worshiping that institution. Because you are bowing down and serving that institution. And that institution may institute gods who decide what is good and evil. Now this is, I'm, I'm showing you the Ten Commandments from a different point of view. And he's, he's talking about those who are going to have mercy unto thousands that love God, Yahweh, and keep His commandments. Well, if you don't know who His commandments are all about, you're not going to keep them. You're going to think, if you construct artificial commandments, you're going to think you're keeping them when you are actually not keeping them. You're going to say, you believe in Yahweh, you believe in the Lord, you you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, but you're not actually doing what he says because you didn't understand the Ten Commandments. You're actually disobeying the Ten Commandments and worshiping false gods, bowing down and serving them. Because... Because you made covenants with them in order to get benefits at the expense of your neighbor. Which takes us all the way down to number 10, coveting your neighbor's goods. See, the average person who thinks they believe in Christ or thinks they believe in Moses or thinks they believe in Yahweh or thinks they believe in God are breaking every one of these rules because they don't understand them. But they may not want to understand them. And, And... Maybe they'll want to become atheists after they finish listening to this. <laughs> so anyway, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that take his name in vain. So take his name. What does that mean to take his name? And actually Dennis Prager, knowing Hebrew, pointed out that the word doesn't mean take as we normally think it does. But if you're not keeping the commandments, but saying you're keeping the commandments because you don't understand them, you may be taking the name of the Lord in vain already. But anyway, we'll have to finish this when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. The next commandment that was in a row there, just going down, it was the Sabbath. And they spent a lot of time in this whole episode 9 of talking about the Sabbath. It was one of the last things that they were addressing. I didn't get to hear the last 10 minutes yet. Because it's over two, half hour, I think, uh, session that they did just to do a review of 19 and 20. But they are important, so we're doing that review too. But we're, I think we can get into 21 and get that done also today one way or another. But keeping holy the Sabbath. And Dennis Prager thinks the Sabbath, of course, is Saturday. And that really is on every calendar I've seen. It's the seventh day of the week. And so he wants to keep that holy by not going anywhere or doing anything on that day. And... He stays home and he, he makes that a ritual, a personal ritual of Dennis Prager. That he stays home and he rests on that day and he doesn't do other things. And that's fine 
as a personal ritual. But that's not what this keeping the Sabbath is all about. And it's not what keeping it holy is all about. Because the Sabbath is clearly explained that God worked for six days and took a day off for rest at the end of that six days of work. He didn't do that six days of work because he owed anybody six days of labor. He he chose to spend six days creating the universe, <laughs> the world that we know. At least that's the way the story is written. Whether it's how much is allegory and how much is metaphor, you can debate that till the well till the cattle come home. But that isn't the point. You're going to be missing the point if you think make a big deal out of that. The point is is that you work first and then you take your rest. If you're in debt, you've done the reverse. The United States is in debt. Australia is in debt. Germany's in debt. England is in debt. Canada is in debt. As nations, they are completely in trillions of dollars worth of debt. Because they don't keep the Sabbath. They don't work first. They spend it before they got it. They take their rest. I, I, I was astounded the first time I ever heard of this. If somebody was borrowing money to take a vacation. They actually went down to a bank and borrowed money. And they said, well, yeah, we can afford that because we have a lot of collateral in our house. So we just did it. You collateralized your house so that you could borrow money to take a vacation. And I just thought that, that was just incomprehensible to me. Well, that's not keeping the Sabbath. Well, today you borrow money for everything and everybody takes vacations on credit card. I actually know somebody who borrowed a credit card for somebody because he, he was coming here to America uh, for a month or so and he didn't know if, you know, his credit cards would work. And this guy had one that worked in America. So he borrowed that credit card, ran up $10,000 worth of debt on his buddy's credit card that he could not pay off. I don't know if he ever paid it all off, but uh crazy, crazy. That's not the spirit of the Sabbath. So, but if he was, you know, maybe he's an Orthodox Jew. He wasn't, but if he was, he, maybe he was taking a day of rest. <laughs> And so he thought he was keeping the Sabbath. No, he was not. So if you're in debt, you haven't been keeping the Sabbath because the Sabbath is about debt. The next commandment, sometimes numbered the fourth, sometimes numbered the fifth, is honor thy father and thy mother so that thy days may be long upon the land. And it's interesting, the word honor there, Jordan even asked what it meant. Nobody gave the actual answer. They were using honor as we often use it. And there are several words in the Hebrew that can be translated honor. But this is kabad. We've talked about it before. It means to fatten, to take care of. You know, uh, if, if, if you raise animals, if you want to fatten them, you give them more feed. <laughs> you take care of them. You you make sure that they don't have to walk so far and you, you provide for them. And honoring thy father and thy mother so that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. You do that so that your days will be long on the land. Now, how would that happen? Well, in this cause and effect universe, you take care of your parents, your kids see it, 
they will take care of you. And that's part of the social structure of societies where they took care of one another. In within the family, if you're going to be a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, the family has to take care of the family. If you're going to be a nation, the family has to care about the next family as much as he cares about his own. So if that family falls down in the ditch, needs help, you have some sort of way of helping them out collectively as a group. But that helping them out has to be done by charity and free will offerings. They were taking care of the elderly in Herod's Judea, but they had, with Herod's baptism, they had entered into an institution with Herod's temple. They had entered into an institution where everybody had to pay into that institution, and that institution took care of the parents in their old age, which is why we already went through this before. You can go back and listen to all the other recordings where we talk about in John, where the blind man parents didn't want to say they thought Jesus was the Christ because they would be kicked out of the social welfare system of Herod, which was the Corbin of the Pharisees. And that was a system that allowed people, sons, to do no more ought for their parents. And that's why Jesus condemned the sacrifice of the Pharisees, the Corbin of the Pharisees, Corbin means sacrifice, because it was making the word of God to none effect, because they were not taking care of one another through free will offerings. They were doing it through forced offerings. That's what Herod had set up with his baptism. That's what FDR set up. And my observations is an awful lot of young people do not take care of their parents as a matter of fact, I know many young people who live with their parents when their parents are on Social Security because they're not taking care of their parents. They will put their parents in a home and the Social Security check will go to the home and the, they'll get them on Medicare and they'll get them on Medicaid and the, the government will take care of them. But the government will also force the contributions of the people because they're not a government of the people, for the people and by the people. They're a government of an institution, a bureaucracy that they created for themselves by making covenants with the rulers and the ruling judges of those institutions they have established for themselves. Moses has established an institution, a, which we would call, it used to say this in encyclopedias, I remember, uh, that what Moses was setting up is the original republic. One of the earliest forms of a republic, long before the Greek city-states, where the people were the state. They were all in a state of freedom, within a social structure that included the Ten Statements, which is an explanation of how the law of nature works. Now, the next five commandments we'll go through real quick. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery, which includes not just sexual adultery, but adultery of your own body, where you're killing yourself by not taking care of yourself properly, uh, or adulterating other people. You're polluting their streams. You're uh, adulterating the environment. 
where you're poisoning other people with the things that you're dumping your waste. I know somebody who lives out in the valley north of here, and he has no plumbing or anything. He just lives in trailers. And so he doesn't even dig a, a hole to throw his waste water and his feces in or put up an outhouse. He actually walks all the way over to his neighbor's property and throws his his excrement over the fence into his neighbor's uh, field and onto his neighbor's property. And uh, that's pretty much adulterating your neighbor's property. And he's probably adulterating himself in many other ways besides, uh, I don't think he could get a date if he had to, but uh, he's not committing sexual adultery, but he's adulterating everything around him, his property, his neighbor's property, his life, his body, etc. So that goes a long way. Thou shalt not steal. Thou That means take away from your neighbor. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. That And, and the last of these, the tenth one, thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's. Well, of course, you won't kill your neighbor. You won't adulterate your neighbor's property. You won't steal from your neighbor. You won't bear false witness to to your neighbor if you don't covet your neighbor's. Now, the idea, and you go back to, if you honor your father, and Dennis Prager is pointing this out, and I appreciate it because I never really thought of it this way. And he mentions, uh, they mention a psychologist who was an atheist, but he believed the way you treat your father is the way you would treat your God. And in essence, those first five, if we number them that way, are connected, all connected but they're summed up in the way you treat your father and your mother. You honor them. You don't worship them. It, honor doesn't even mean love them. It means take care of them. But I can tell you this. If if your father was a bad father and needs your forgiveness, you'll probably have to forgive him before you can honor him. And that that is a key element. And you need to do that. And if you do that, your days may be longer upon the land because your children will see that forgiveness. And there was a lot of talk about that, and I appreciate that on their deal. But they didn't really come to a understanding of the rituals and ceremonies surrounding those ten statements. But... They're closer than a lot of people, <laughs> but not as close as we need to get. So we're going to take you that extra step. Then the other couple of things, like I said, that they talk about the people were afraid and everything. And Moses says, fear not. That's very important. Fear not. And that's repeated over and over again. And we have links there at preparingyou.com where we deal with this 20 where you can go read your articles on fear not and fear and why you're not supposed to be afraid. But then in 23 and 24, 25 and 26, he talks about gods of silver. Neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. And of course, shortly after this was given to them, they made a god of gold, <laughs> which was the golden calf. But if you don't understand that the golden calf was a form of central bank, a reserve fund, as the Greek city-states called it, which bound the people together because they bound their wealth together. 
because gold was wealth. Silver was something you spent. Gold was something you saved. Uh, it was this portable treasure, this portable land. And it was very essential that you have that to, in order to buy land other places. You could buy it with other means, but we even see you could buy land with silver even. But these were commodity money. Silver is really a commodity money. Gold is really a commodity money until you stamp a denomination on it. It's a commodity. It's a valuable asset. The same as copper could be a valuable asset. They're commodity monies. But to build that statue of that gods of silver or gods of gold, of course you can do it even with Federal Reserve notes if you make them your god and you're making decisions based on the fact that you want to get more Federal Reserve notes or Queen Bucks, whatever they use in England, whatever they have there, you want to get more of those notes, more of that wealth, and you're sacrificing your neighbor to do it, then you're not keeping the commandments. But then he says in 24, Altars of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice there on thy burnt offerings. Well, we have a link there so you can understand. Burnt offerings has nothing to do with setting anything on fire. Altars doesn't have anything to do with piling up stones. It has to do with the institutions that are going to provide for your neighbor, take care of your neighbor, and to take care of the widows and orphans. That's that, and the institutions that you practice religion from. So now we can go back to that atheist who thinks, oh, we don't need religion, but he has a religion. It's called public religion. It's called the government is your religion because that's where you go to get your benefits. You don't, you're not going to take care of your parents. You're going to have the government take care of your parents. You don't have to worry about your kids taking care of you because you're going to have the government take care of you. You can you can get insurance and you can have savings, but ultimately you're not dependent upon the family, which is the building block of the kingdom of God. You're dependent upon governments. Of course, that's going to, you know, as Polybius said, 150 years even before Christ was saying that when you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others, which is what everybody has done through public religion, you're going to degenerate yourself and you're going to regenerate tyranny in the land. And of course, Moses knows that and God knows that and he's explaining to you how to do that and he brings up in verse 25 altars of stone these are more official systems of charity altars of clay that's you your clay your earth that's the congregations of tens hundreds and thousands but the altars of stone are men set aside unhewn unregulated to take care of the needy of your society if you start regulating them, you will pollute that system. If you start making up rules on how they can do things, you're going to pollute that system. But you still have the power because you only give them and only give to those you choose to give to because you're a free society. See, if, if you don't have a choice as to how much you're going to give and contribute, to your public religion, your governmental religion, then you're not free. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. But you may be taken care of today, but you will see tyranny tomorrow. That is just, so history tells us this over and over again. But if you want to turn a blind eye to it, 
if you want to put your head back into the sand, you're not going to get it. You're not going to realize what is true and what is not true. You're not going to understand that you're not keeping the commandments, which is why all the problems of the world today, the rise of the Great Reset, the New World Order, the tyranny of government, the taking away our God-given rights, is because you've been throwing them away. You've been throwing away your God-given responsibilities and putting them in the hands of men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority, which Christ forbid. But you still call yourself a Christian. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. That is carrying the name of the Lord while you not keeping his commandment. And then finally in 26, thou shalt not go up by steps. Another one of those things that came up uh, during the video where I was interviewed by the atheist because he thought that was so silly. You don't go up by steps because you might see your nakedness, you know, and everything. But that It has nothing to do with actual stairs. It doesn't have anything to do with nakedness of your body or needing to sew the breeches. I I think I put the, uh, if I didn't, I will, I'll put a link to our article on breeches so you can understand why the people had to sew the breeches, what that meant. had nothing to do with underwear. But if you don't understand these words that are in the text and what they mean, You won't get it. And over and over again, both back in episode 8 and episode 9 now, they've made reference to the fact that Moses realized he couldn't judge the people because he would become the tyrant. He would become a pharaoh. So he's given that responsibility to the people. And we've explained that before. That means that as juries in your nation, even in Canada, they don't realize this because there were Canadians on this deal. You know, the, the law, the law that says the, the jury has the right to decide fact and law. Where they can overrule the legislature, they can overrule the parliament. That didn't come from the United States. That came from Moses. And that actually came from England before it got here to America. It was William Penn's case was the one that they originally quoted. So in Canada, they had the common law of England come over. Well, the common law of England says the jury has the right to decide fact and law. But if you haven't read our article on juries at Preparing You, you probably don't know where you waive your right to decide fact and law. And why is deciding fact and law have anything to do with the Bible and Christianity and Judaism and all that stuff? Because it's the weightier matters. It's the weightier matters that Jesus said condemned the Pharisees because they weren't attending to. If he was here now, he would be condemning most modern Christians because they're not attending to the weightier matters either. They're waiving their right to attend to the weightier matters so that they can get more free stuff from their neighbor. And now you've created a whole system, an image of the kingdom of God, which is nothing more than a beast because it's filled with people that want to take a bite out of one another. So going up those steps is not going up steps of authority. So yes, there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of God, but it's based on how willing you're 
how willing you are to go lower. In other words, bend down and serve your fellow man. Because God doesn't need your service. Your rituals and ceremonies are nonsense to him. Most of them. What your rituals and ceremonies should be is tending to the weightier matters, taking care of one another, taking care of your parents, taking care of your neighbors, taking care of the widows and orphans, protecting the the weak from the unjust. And you can't do that unless you organize the way Moses is going to teach the people to organize. But then he's going to go into Exodus 21 and start giving us all these rules, these 200, 300 different rules that we're going to have to follow because they're statutes and ordinances. But are they? Are they statutes and ordinances? What are they really? So we need to go and take a look at that. And it says, now these are the judgments, in verse 1, we're now in Exodus 21, which thou shalt set before them. Judgments. What does he mean, judgments? Well, of course, that's mishvat, is the actual word that there that we see, which is a word that is, you know, there's actually different variations. Of it. There's I, I put down in here in the definition, there's at least 50 different variation spellings of this word, and those spellings make a difference. But it's translated judgment 296 times, but manner 36 times, right 18 times, cause 12 times, ordinance 11 times, lawful 7 times, order 5 times, worthy 3 times. So you have all these different translations of it, but it means judgment, justice, or ordinance. But what are we supposed to be doing with this? Is this a law for us? Now these are the these are the justice which thou shalt set before them. The the giving you an idea of what how to implement the weightier matters. And the actual word there, I actually have it in the Hebrew there, where they add these extra letters to this word with hey and at the end a yad and a mem. Uh, so that you realize that they mean more than just judgments. These aren't just ordinances or statutes. These are actually precepts for you to understand. So in verse 2, If thou buy a Hebrew servant six years, he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. He doesn't have to pay anything. He just goes out. Buy him. How do you buy this servant? Well, You buy and sell people all the time in your country. They're called football players, basketball players. (laughs) They're traded to this outfit or that outfit, and they have to go work for them. And they can't stay working for you. Now they have to go work for them if they want the big bucks that they're going to get paid. But the reality is I can show you all kinds of laws on the books in the United States as well as in other countries, where your labor belongs to somebody else. And and they can they can require that labor. They can literally come up to you and take you off the street and put you in a work camp and you haven't done anything wrong because they already own your labor. And they state this in the law. But we're not going to go there or we won't get anywhere. But uh, verse 3, if, if he came in by himself... 
he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. So if he comes in with a wife, he can go out with a wife. In other words, comes in, how does he come in? He sells himself a servant for so many years. You know, I'll work for you. I, You know, I don't own anything. I work for you. We see Jacob doing that. This is not new. These are not new ideas. He's taking the old ideas and explaining And mostly what he's doing is putting a limits on what you can do. And, and we see that in verse 4. If his master have given him a wife and she have borne him a son or daughter and the wife and her children shall be her master's. And he shall go out by himself. Now we'll explain that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we have this uh, idea that, okay, if a guy sells himself, Signs up for a period of time. He's actually making a contract. I'll work for you for seven years, just like Jacob. And at the end of that seven years, I get to go out free. And you make some sort of an agreement as to what you can take out with you. If you already married when you do this, your wife is goes out with you. She may come in with you, and that's part of the deal. But when she goes out, she goes out with you. She She's your wife. But it says in verse 4 that if your master gives you a wife, and the word wife there is the same word for woman, and she bear a child, a son, and a daughter, those sons and daughters will remain belonging to the masters. Because why does he even have them? Is she, is she his servant for a different seven-year period? Maybe she came in... Somewhere along that line. the That means the son and the child, the daughters, are the responsibility of the masters as well. They belong to his household. They don't belong to the state because there is no state. The state is the individual freemen of Israel. There is no king in Israel that can own any of these people. They own themselves, but in conducting business amongst themselves, there's certain things that they have to understand. Now, if a man is given a wife by his master, he could say to that master, I do not want to take this wife unless you give her freely, no strings attached, so that our children will go out with me. He could say that. There's nothing in here restricting that. And the reality is, thousands of years later, we had such contracts. They they call them frank marriages, where you you give uh, somebody a wife. You, there's no dower involved or anything. It doesn't have to be. There could be, but you give somebody a wife, but you say it's a frank marriage. That means she's yours entirely, and and assumedly she consents to this. This is done all the time. In the British hierarchy and the Germany and all that stuff, their their royal systems, as well as amongst the common people, that these two were joined together. In the eyes of the Lord, they they were husband and wife. This is one of the first things I noticed in reading Clark's summary of U.S. American law 
one of the most fundamental law books in the education of law in America for over a century, that I was looking in there and I found this a section on husband and wife under domestic relations. It was capital husband, capital wife. This was actually a position at law, at common law. And uh, it said rights of the husband, rights of the wife, rights to custody of the children, all these subparagraphs. And then you go back a little bit farther in the chapter of domestic relations, they had another thing called marriage. That's where you gave a woman in marriage. And it wasn't necessarily a frank marriage. It was a different kind. Of, and, and if you go read our article on marriage, you can look it up at PreparingYou at HisHolyChurch.org. One of the first chapters of the book Covenants of the Gods uh, that I gave my dad to read. And he said, you're right. And my dad was a lawyer and wrote law books. But they're not going to like you because I'm telling you how it works. Why, in the previous chapter, we were to make no covenants with their gods, their ruling judges. Because now they get to decide. Can you can you go out and be free? If there was some way you could suddenly be free, can you take your wife and children with you? Is there? Because when Moses was negotiating the departure of his people from the bondage of Egypt. He made it a condition that all the women go, all the children go, all the livestock go, all their possessions go with them. You're going to have the land and anything they can't carry, but they're going to go out whole. Moses understands that. He's writing this down so that you will understand it. You know where you stand. I, I'm not taking that wife unless I can keep the children. And you just work that out with your master. Because you have a master. Now, now that, that guy who was an atheist, he probably doesn't think he has a master. But he probably does. And it's the state. Because he doesn't really live in a state of freedom. He lives in the state of the bondage of Egypt. He's back in the bondage of Egypt. He just hasn't been willing to see that yet. Now you can say, well, I don't care about all these social contracts and these covenants and all. I don't know anything about that. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Well, you can do that. But you're going to be doing that alone. (laughs) So anyway... Back to uh, witnesses before God. He says, And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. This is for the guy who didn't, who said to his master, I will take this wife, but I will just take it as, because the wife already belongs. He's not just getting somebody off the street. He's just, this guy's not marrying somebody off the street. He, if he met somebody else and wanted to get married, he can ask his master, can I have permission to marry this woman and keep her as my wife when I go out? And he could say, yeah. But that's not what, when you ask permission of the state if you can get married, that's not in the deal. You can look up the statutes. It's a three-party contract. And you may not even be able to take your wife out. Your, may, your wife may be able to take all your stuff out. <laughs> Uh, when she decides she doesn't want to be married to you anymore. But those are all the rules of that system. 
Moses is setting up a system for free men who are taking back the responsibility of the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And he's explaining that you need to understand that you just can't not do what you want because it will enter, you will be coming into conflict with the law of nature and nature's God. He's trying to show you with these that, you know, if the Ten Commandments are the Ten Statements, and they're the foundation of the Torah, which Torah doesn't even mean law, it means instructions, then these statutes are not law either. They're instructions to help you understand what you may not have understood before. Many people probably understood this. Like I said, that you know, Jacob already knew, you know, I could sell myself an indentured servant for seven years. And he already had that idea. Moses didn't invent that. That was around for thousands of years before. It's a concept. That's how, that's why still to this day you can become naturalized in a country without statutes because you lived there for seven years. That's why you didn't want to indentured yourself for more than seven years. You had to have a separate contract for the next seven years. Now, people say, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you don't know a lot. (laughs) The more you know, the more the world will make sense to you. Then his master shall bring him. So if he decides he doesn't want to go out, then he brings him before the judges. The word judges there is Elohim. That's actually the word for God. It's actually, hey, Elohim, which is an emphasis word. It's the gods. That's the way that should be translated. Bring it before the gods, which are actually people. They're the ruling judges of these agreements that you're making. And so that's how they're the ruling judges. And, but he, and he will pierce the guy's ear against the door of the temple and you will be the masters forever. But that's if you were stupid enough not to make an agreement that I'm going to take I will take this wife on the condition I can take her out with me. You could have done that. But you wouldn't have known to do that if you hadn't read these rules and realized, oh, that's a trap. If I don't insist upon having the right, I may be stuck. I have to stay with the master. But maybe you want to stay with the master forever and not renew your contract. The guy is just so benevolent and so happy that you want to stay with him. I mean... The master is your social security. Your your master is your social you don't have to sign up for Medicare or Medicaid and Social Security because his household is your social security and you're working to make him a success and he's working to take care of you and he actually loves you and you have a great relationship. But it's either you're going to have some servitude amongst free men or you're going to end up going into slavery to a state. Because all the city-states are set up where you belong to the state. It's only these republics, true and pure republics, where your labor belongs to you, where your children belong to you, where your wife belongs to you and you to your wife as a mutual agreement, a two-party agreement between you and your wife. So anyway, we go on to seven. Indentured daughter's protected and if a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant she shall not go out as the men servants do 
So the men's servants will go out after so many years, but the maid servants won't. If she please not her master, who hath betrothed her to himself, then she shall he let her be redeemed. To sell her unto a strange nation, he shall have no power. In other words, people, strange people, to somebody else. She can be redeemed back to her own family. She, you you can't, he does not have the power to sell her to somebody else. She can't go out quite like the manservant, but she can't be sold around. Seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. See, he he literally bought her to be his wife, but then he wants to dump her. Well, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. So, it goes on to say, if he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, her duty of marriage, shall he not diminish. He has to take care of her. If he takes another second wife, he still has to take care of the first. He has to provide her food, her raiment, all the duties to her as if he's still married to her. Even the Muslims got that. That's a built-in alimony. (laughs) You can't, can't just divorce her and say, well, I don't want her as a wife. I want this other lady as a wife. It's his protection for the woman. Everybody says, oh, he's making the woman a slave. No. It's protection for the woman. I can guarantee that she would not be sold into slavery if she didn't want to be. Uh, and it's not slavery, really. It's to be a servant of another household. She's going to be a part of another household. And if he do not these three unto her, then shall she go out free without money. So he has to provide all these things or she can become totally free again. He's obligated. And so... Because these are written down, he knows he'll be obligated. Because they're written down, her father knows that he will be obligated. Because they're written down, she knows what her rights are. Because there's a recording of it. But they're trying to protect the woman, trying to protect her rights as an individual. He that smited the man so that he died, this is another, has to do with the cost of injury. He died, shall be surely put to death. And there's this word put to death. I've got there, I've got the Hebrew there so that you can see that the actual letters of these words, uh, vary to some degree as they're used in the sentence. And, and even the word surely is the same word as death. There is no put to death. It is surely die or surely death will come to him. But what is death? If we look at that word death, in the Hebrew, muth, which is mem, vav, tav, which tav is the letter for faith. But yeah, it, it often means to kill, but, or dead man or deadly body in no wise, it, those are the different translations. It doesn't necessarily mean kill like you stab him and stop his heart beating. It means he's like killed to you. He is not going to be a part of your life or anybody else's life that you are with. You have to remember this this contract with each other, what it amounts to, and we'll see this as we go in there further, that you smite somebody and kill them. 
you owe a life for a life. But if, you know, what does it say? That if uh, you do the eye for an eye, eventually the whole nation will be blind. Uh, and really is Moses taking them out of the oppression of Egypt to bring them into the oppression of this new kingdom where if you kill somebody, you're... You could be murdered. Is there any protection that you won't be falsely accused? Well, of course, we've seen that. You can't falsely accuse. Or you will be held responsible for what you accuse. If you cause the death of somebody by a false accusation, you can be put to death, theoretically. So, in verse 13, it says, And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hands, then I will appoint thee a place whether he shall flee. Okay, Lie in wait. Okay, you smited a guy, but were you lying in wait? Were you planning? Is this premeditated murder? So as you get deeper into these explanations of natural law, which is what we're really looking at here, you're going to realize that they're breaking down the law, and this is going to be important. If you ever become jurors who decide fact and law, understand what is really your lawful right to judge and not judge? There's a difference between somebody who gets in a fight and hits somebody and kills them than somebody who plotted along the trail to to bushwhack this guy and kill him. You know, that idea of lie not in wait. A concealed weapon. We have all these concealed weapon permits that people have. You can get a permit from the government to have a concealed weapon. A concealed weapon comes back from the old English lay in wait. When If you had a gun in a holster over, and then you had a coat where they couldn't see that gun anymore because it was on the outside of your belt, but it was your winter coat covered it. Is it now a concealed weapon? No. Not really. They they will interpret it that way in modern courts. You wouldn't have to if you could decide fact and law in as a jury, but you probably won't have that ability because you don't know when you waive the right to do that. But you didn't put on the coat to lay in wait for somebody. You put on the coat so you wouldn't freeze. And it happened to conceal your gun from ready view. I don't know, should you put in a plastic little area there that they can look through the plastic and see, oh, he's got a gun under that coat. No, it's not laying in wait because the gun is not readily visible. Because you're not going around stalking people, laying in wait to ambush them. That's what laying in wait means. But they they fudge the definition and everybody's so ignorant when they go into court that they don't even understand what they're talking about. They don't even know how to go into court. They don't even know how to be a jury to decide fact and law. Now, I've mentioned that several times. Oregon Constitution says a jury has a right to decide fact and law. But I can guarantee you that 99% of the juries that sit in Oregon no longer have the right to decide fact and law, even though it's guaranteed to them under the Oregon Constitution, because they don't understand the weightier matters of law, judgment, and mercy, and faith. And they waive their right to decide fact and law because they're so darn ignorant. Which is why I've written all these books and articles, so you can find out what the truth is. 
But I only want to tell everybody what the truth is so that you can actually seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm not trying to license people to do bad things. That's which is most of what license is about these days. But anyway, back to talking about laying in wait. He says he's going to give you a place to flee. What is he's going to appoint a place where you can flee? Oh, so that murderers get away with murder? No, no, it's an appeals court. Moses is going to give you an appeals court. But if a man come presumptuously, acts with premeditation, presumptuously, that's what it means, upon his neighbor to slay him with guile by treachery, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. There's that word again, die. Take him from mine altar. So how do you take him from the altar so that he might die? What is that all about? Why is he, why is he saying that? And does that have anything to do with the other deaths that we saw earlier that he put to death? Is he being put to death or are they doing the same thing in other places that he is considered dead? And we're going to see this when we study stoning. Because you think stoning, if most people think stoning in the Bible is about all the Israelites in a village lining up and throwing rocks at some woman or some man until they die. They think that's what stoning means. But of course, a lot of people who think that also thought that the leaven was about yeast. And, and they thought, that going up by steps so you don't see their nakedness was about seeing their nakedness up their clothing if the steps were too steep. There's people actually think that's what they're talking about. But if I told you that that guy over there has got a big heart, do you think he has an enlarged heart or do you think he's really a nice guy? I mean, I don't have to explain that. No, I don't mean he has an enlarged heart. I mean, he's really a generous guy. He's got a big heart. He's a sweet old guy with a big heart. You know that I'm not talking about an enlarged heart. <laughs> you just know it. Well, if you really knew Hebrew and hadn't studied it with all the rabbis I've seen of late, you would uh, you would know what they're really talking about there. Take him from mine altar. That he may die. And, and the word there, die, is lamut. A little bit different. Lamad mut. Uh, so what is that all about? And, and the altar is Mizbeh. Well, he, he's not, he, he would be afraid of that status of not being able to go to the altars of God. Because uh, just like the parents of the blind men were afraid, they were going to be kicked out of the system. And they weren't going to be able to go to the altars of the Pharisees for their social welfare. They were going to be kicked out. A lot of people would be absolutely terrified. You want to be free? I want to be a free people? Okay. 
you, you, you can't take any more benefits from men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority by taking away from your neighbor or borrowing against the future of your neighbor's children so that you can have free stuff today. See, all the people who want to do that, they're not keeping the Sabbath. They're coveting their neighbor's goods. They're, you know, burying false witness and taking the name of the Lord in vain because they really are perfectly content with taking a bite out of their neighbor. So gather together, and until then, all I can say is peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. See you on the network. Join us at Preparing You. And uh, join the network and become a part of the Living Network. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.